Thank you very much, Peggy. Thank you for, to the alumni for inviting me. It's a particular uh, pleasure to be giving the Weatherall lecture because David Weatherall was my boss. I was a registrar at the Radcliffe and then John Radcliffe underneath him. But more particularly because he is the architect or the father of Oxford Tropical Medicine. And I think uh, it's not unfair to say that Oxford leads the world in, tropical, in clinical tropical medicine research, certainly, and in malaria, the subject of my talk today. I think uh, Oxford is Oxford-based in investigators and units are the leading clinical researchers in malaria in the world, which is a tribute to him. So uh, malaria is the most important parasitic disease of man. We think about a billion people are uh, at risk of having malaria and each day about 2,000 people die from malaria. Most of those are children uh, in Africa. I said I would talk about uh, developments in malaria, uh, which depends, of course, on when you start. And in deference to the audience, most of whom appear to be even slightly older than me, uh, I thought I'd play on the safe side and start around 1630. Um, 1630 was important because that was the year, or approximately the year, when the bark of the cinchona tree, known as the Jesuits' bark, was brought to the Ospedale Spiritu Santo in Rome and then disseminated throughout Europe. Now we think of malaria as a tropical disease, but in fact malaria was prevalent in, in England. Uh, along the eastern seaboard, the Isle of Sheppey was particularly badly affected, but it declined markedly in the 19th century. These were the good old days when it wasn't necessary to specify exactly what was on the y-axis, just to say that there was rather a lot. It's even said that Oliver Cromwell had, had malaria, although uh, probably more likely that he died as a result of, of renal stones. Malaria was particularly found in the marshy areas. This is marsh, non-marsh, not, not an allusion to my colleague Kevin Marsh, who leads the Khalifi uh, research unit. So the deaths, these are, these are burial rates, so deaths were considerably more likely if you lived in these marshy areas and the attributable, the, the disease that was uh, said to kill you was a disease called ague. We, people didn't know what ague was. We, call, we think it's synonymous with malaria. Several prominent physicians of the time wrote about the bark. This is our own Thomas Willis, uh, Thomas Sydenham. I particularly like the... Uh, address of the, this pamphlet from Duck Lane, Little Britain, <laughs> rather prescient publication. Sydenham wrote uh, or gave advice on how to treat the ague uh, with bark of varying quality and quantity. Uh, but perhaps the most uh, controversial figure was uh, Robert Talbot, or Talbot, uh, not a physician, at least in terms of the physician's perspective, an apothecary and fever expert, a humble man who went to work in the, uh, the uh, egg-infested Essex marshes and said, I was resolved to do what study or industry I could perform to find out a certain cure for this unruly distemper. There was no other way to satisfy my desire but by that good old way, observation and experiment. God blessing my endeavours, I have attained to a perfect knowledge of the cure of the most inveterate and pernicious eggs. Well, he uh, was very successful, actually, and he treated both uh, the both Charles II and the Dauphin, was knighted and thoroughly irritated the physicians who really wanted him removed. In fact, took out a contract, as is said, on his life. So the dose used then, in a civilised form, 
uh, is very similar to actually the dose uh, we use now, based on what we expect would have been extracted from the bark at the time, the main alkaloid being quinine, and then the dextrorotatory stereoisomer of quinine, which is quinidine, and the two methyl derivatives, which are no longer used. The problem at that time was that uh, all fevers were being treated by the bark, and some of them seemed to get better, and some of them didn't. And it wasn't until Torchy, uh, in the mid-18th century, uh, realized that there were certain fevers that would respond, and this is his famous fever tree, and only the fevers, and you may notice there are several of them, only the fevers on this side would respond uh, to the bark. In 1820, Pelletier and Caventou, standing here rather cold in Paris on their statue, uh, identified the structure of quinine. Uh, it wasn't possible to synthesize it then, and it wasn't in fact possible for nearly another hundred years. The bark was expensive, the product was expensive, and so many tried to find a synthesis, a chemical synthesis, and uh, one of these was William Henry Perkin, who didn't actually manage to synthesize quinine, but by mistake made something rather beautiful called mauve, and that therein started the aniline dye industry. So the bark had various uh, origins in South America and various contents and qualities. So there was a great uh, interest in trying to find high-yielding versions or uh, derivatives. The British were rather satisfied with the seeds that they had obtained and made plantations in the Nilgiri Hills in the south of India. But the, uh, it, it, we now know in retrospect that this wasn't the best stuff, so to speak. The best stuff, the best uh, quinine of all came from a plant which we now know as Cincona ledgeriana after Charles Ledger, shown in the photograph here, who was an intrepid explorer and entrepreneur who traveled a lot in South America and identified uh, a bark of the highest possible quality. He, uh, he couldn't obtain seeds because he arrived at the wrong time of year, so he sent his trusty servant, whose name really was Manuel, uh, <laughs> up here to Bolivia, and Manuel, after waiting for three years in one location, finally got seeds and brought them back. But the British weren't interested. They were happy with their Nilgiri Hill plantations, so the seeds were sold to the Dutch for 20 pounds, and within a decade they had enormous yields, and 90% of the bark in the world eventually derived from the island of Java, something of military relevance which we'll come back to. And I think that uh, summarizes the British involvement rather well. So this was the scramble for Africa and uh, an essential part of the, colo the colonialization or, uh, of Africa was the ability to remain alive and quinine or bark extract was an essential component of that. And all forms of quinine were used. In fact, it became uh, somehow synonymous with being well as opposed to not being ill. And all sorts of malaria and fever tonics were produced. And uh, we have the Stones ginger wine and the quinine wine. We even have today uh, Barolo quinine. And of course, we maintain this tradition uh, actively. Uh, you can treat uh, quinine, uh, can treat malaria with tonic, Indian tonic water. It contains 79 milligrams per litre. So, a mere eight litres three times a day should do the job. 
But what was the cause of this illness? Uh, fortunately, the great German microbiologist, Robert Koch, in particular Edwin Klebs and Tommaso Crudelli, fortunately they did finally identify the cause of this, a bacteria. So they were not very happy when an upstart uh, physician working in French North Africa, in fact modern-day Algeria, uh, in this hill fort here, said, no, no, it wasn't a bacteria, actually, it was caused by a blood parasite. And this was the drawings uh, in 1880. Uh, and initially, I have to say, there was, this was greeted with considerable scepticism, including by our own William Osler. But within about five years, uh, more or less everybody uh, who was anybody in medicine had agreed, uh, finally agreed with Laverin. And obviously, here we have Osler in somewhat poetic mode, describing uh, in fact, Osler is, it is said that Osler introduced the first routine blood test into, uh, into medicine when he insisted that every patient that came in under his service at the Johns Hopkins uh, Hospital would have a blood test for malaria. These are the sexual forms of Plasmodium falciparum, the crescents here. Uh, and if you fail to recognize a crescent, you should wear a crown of thorns. We don't uh, use that in, for the medical students these days. We use verbal instruction. So uh, we had now got the, uh, the treatment, we got the organism, but how did you get it? Now Patrick Manson, who is often thought of as the father of tropical medicine, was working in uh, southern China and he was the first person to uh, identify uh, an insect, a mosquito in this case, as the vector of a disease, filariasis. And he suggested to the young uh, captain then, Ronald Ross of the Indian Medical Service, that he should look in the mosquito. And this was, uh, uh, this was indeed correct. And, Mo and Ross, after a lot of uh, failures, finally identified, paras or find identified what I'll show you in the next slide, in the gut of the dappled winged mosquito, which was probably Anopheles stephensi. Uh, he didn't, they're not uh, actually in real life blue like that. But you, see, you can actually see in the naked eye the little eggs as they stick to the uh, gut wall of the mosquito. And that's what Ross saw, and he realized that this was how malaria was transmitted. Meanwhile, the great Italian school, and I have to say the Italian school had almost exactly at the same time as Ross identified the mosquito as a vector, and there was a lot of uh, acrimonious debate when Ross uh, won the Nobel Prize and they didn't. Uh, and uh, in truth, I think it was, it was a dead heat. Uh, but the Italians were certainly uh, the leaders in terms of understanding the pathophysiology and the pathology of malaria. And this is Marchio Fava and Bignami, who many of you will remember from red wine fame, uh, but actually Marchio Fava was the greatest of the uh, malaria pathologists. And they noticed that Whereas the, in the blood of the finger, as they would put it, you could see young parasites, when the patient died, the brain vessels and other vessels of vital organs were absolutely packed by red cells containing mature forms of the parasite that you didn't see in the peripheral blood. This is a process called sequestration, and it produces literally a traffic drown. So this is the basic pathophysiology of, of lethal malaria, a microvascular traffic jam. Ehrlich, the father of chemotherapy, was the first person to, in, was first person to study and evaluate a synthetic anti-malarial, and the first synthetic anti-malarial was methylene blue. Yes, the same stuff we use in the dye. Methylene blue can be used to treat malaria. It does make your mouth go blue, and it's not used very much these days, 
but there's a resurgence of interest in it. So within a few years, I wouldn't be surprised if we see methylene blue coming back for its centenary uh, anniversary. And indeed, uh, I did happen to find this in, uh, in Cambodia, in a, a pharmacy. There are several interesting things about this. One is it contains methylene blue, and the other is that it uh, contains quinine. And the third is that this uh, laboratory doesn't exist. It's, so I've no idea who makes it and why, but this is a very common problem in, with, with anti-malarial drugs, indeed all drugs in the tropics, fake and counterfeit and substandard drugs. Uh, I'm not sure if this is uh, counterfeit, but it's certainly blue, so I suspect it is, does indeed contain methylene blue. Malaria figured quite prominently amongst the first uh, Nobel Prizes, Ross, Robert Koch, uh, who led an uh, expedition to the island of New Guinea, on, specifically on malaria. Golgi, who didn't win his Nobel Prize for malaria, but worked a lot on it and was the first person to identify plasmodium malaria. Lavarin, who discovered the parasite, Ehrlich, who I just showed you about. And this cheerful chap, Julius Wagner-Jareg. Uh, he, it was he who discovered that if you gave people with central nervous system syphilis a high fever, that some of them were benefited. In fact, malaria therapy became the only effective treatment for GPI uh, for about, 30, about three decades, 30 years. And about a third of people who received malaria for neurosyphilis were cured. And about another third were benefited. Um, so it was a remarkable period uh, when man was the, effectively the experimental animal. And we know probably more about malaria as a result of that than any other infectious disease of human beings. And it was only when uh, penicillin came in in the 1950s that malaria therapy stopped. So Epsom Hospital, the Horton Hospital at Epsom was the epicenter for the UK work. Another spin-off of quinine was, its, uh, was quinidine, the dextrorotatory isomer, and Venkibach was the first person to evaluate quinidine as an antiarrhythmic. So in Europe, in the uh, first half of the 20th century, malaria was on the decline, probably largely as a result of improvement in socioeconomic conditions. But in the southern parts of Europe, in Greece, in Italy, Portugal and Spain, there was very high transmission of malaria and it exerted a considerable socio-economic toll as well as a health toll. And so the League of Nations formed a commission to try and get rid of malaria in Europe. That was uh, partially interrupted by the Second World War. Uh, the Japanese expansion in the east soon took the island of Java and therefore uh, there were no, effectively, almost no supplies of, of the bark to produce quinine and the Allies realised that. So an enormous effort in anti-malarial drug discovery was, uh, began on both sides of the Atlantic, particularly in the United States, uh, and a number of synthetic compounds were introduced. Actually, uh, the key ones were discovered in Germany. This is atabrin or mepocrine or quinacrine, which was discovered in 1932, uh, and chloroquine two years later in 1934, both by the Bayer laboratories, but through a peculiar, and I haven't got time to go into it, a reciprocal relationship with Winthrop, Sterling Winthrop, uh, these, the structures were known to the Allies. Uh, and mepocrine was very important in the ultimate success of the war in the Pacific. So back in the uh, 
temperate countries, uh, malaria was on the decline. This is in the United States. Malaria is a particular problem in the uh, southeastern states of the United States. And the US Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, was, was formed specifically to get rid of malaria. It subsequently took on a larger remit. And you can see malaria uh, declining here and really going down to zero uh, by the 1950s. So it, the, the, those parts of the world that uh, were malarious were becoming prosperous. And there was no, uh, that, perhaps that was no uh, coincidence. Malaria, uh, where it was prevalent, exerted a considerable toll. Uh, and the success in Europe uh, gave rise to some optimism that perhaps malaria could be removed from the globe. And the League of Nations, as you know, gave way to the World Health Organization with the newly formed United Nations. And so plans were made to eradicate malaria. This is Paul Russell, one of the uh, leading proponents of global malaria eradication. And the final plans uh, were laid in Kampala. This was the days when you could wear trousers like that still. Uh, and a decision was made to go for global eradication. And this was finally endorsed by the World Health Organization in 1955, and in some places was remarkably successful, and in other places was clearly not successful. And as you know, we did not achieve uh, eradication. But the map had changed substantially. Malaria had really gone from, uh, from the temperate areas. It had gone from North America, it had gone from Europe, and it had gone from Russia. And it, it remained in its heartland in the tropics. Then came a rather depressing period of what is euphemistically known as containment. And uh, during this period, when uh, we all relaxed, there was much less funding, uh, resistance to, in both, to both the main insecticide, DDT, and to the main drug, chloroquine, was rising, but very little was being done to counter this. I'm coming on to this story in a minute. And so almost under the radar, malaria came back, and it came back really big time. Now, malaria has always been a, a particular problem of any uh, warfare in, in the tropics, and the Vietnam War was no exception. And Ho Chi Minh realized, just uh, as the Americans did, that his, that his forces would be debilitated by malaria. So he approached Zhou Enlai and said, could you help us? And this was in the immediate aftermath of the Cultural Revolution, um, when things were still pretty chaotic, actually. But scientists, in fact, 40 scientists all over uh, China, and those were the, the leaders. In fact, some of these slides come from Yingli, here at the back, from Shanghai. Uh, 40 scientists uh, were brought together in what was known as Project 523 to try and develop new anti-malarial drugs. And they did two things. One was to try and look at new synthetics, or synthetics that had uh, been already discovered but not actually developed, and their traditional uh, Materia Medica. And here are a number of the compounds. This compound actually is an effective anti-malarial. It comes from this plant called Yinghao Su. It's got that very important peroxide bridge that you'll see in the next slide. Uh, but this was the, uh, you'll see here that this was the first uh, in the medical literature. You've probably all read this. Uh, this is Ji Hong's description uh, from nearly 2,000 years ago of the use of uh, extract of a plant called Jinghao. Uh, and the extract is called Jinghao Su. 
So Jinghao Su uh, as a treatment for fever. And the plant is a relative, actually, of Artemisia absinthium, which produces absinthe, and it's Artemisia annua. Again, you have this important pair of spectacles here. This is the business end of the molecule, and you need that uh, for anti-malarial activity. It was a unique molecule. When it was first described, uh, people just didn't believe that something like that could be stable. This is a photograph of... Uh, uh, Mao Zedong discussing the chemical structure of Jinghao Su with <laughs> Ho Chi Minh. This is a picture of some of the first extracts of this. It's very easy to extract it, actually. You just needed benzene, which you're not allowed to do now, and boil it up with a bit of plant, and you got this stuff. About 1% dry uh, uh, of the uh, dry weight of the plant at the time, just uh, of the fresh green leaves. The important thing about Jinghao Su, when it was first revealed to the West, was that it was just better than everything else. It worked more quickly. It killed the parasites more quickly and they went away from the blood uh, more quickly. Now just to go back uh, to uh, Plasmodium falciparum, this is the killing parasite. This accounts for nearly all the deaths. What you see in the blood film, and I'm sure many of you have, are these little things which look like a signet ring or a pair of stereo headphones if there are two nuclei. And you don't see these ones, unless it's the patient is very seriously ill, because those are the ones that, as Marchiafava and Bignami showed first, are, that are stuck in your small blood vessels, blocking them all up. Now, all the anti-malarial drugs we had to date only killed them after they stuck. But these drugs, the artemisinins, killed them before they got stuck. And that's probably, almost definitely now, why they're so much better. So the first question was, could they beat could one plant beat another one? Could the, could the extract of this Chinese herb beat the bark of the Peruvian tree? And unfortunately, we listened to the World Health Organization who insisted that uh, the first drug to be evaluated was an oil-based injection called Artemisa. And cutting a long story short, uh, although there was some evidence of benefit, this uh, summary odds ratio of all the trials about uh, nearly 2,000 patients involved, just crosses one. So yes, it looked like it was better, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't enough to sway world opinion and change practice. But we will come back to that story. Meanwhile, in Thailand, where I work, uh, the drugs were all dying. Uh, Thailand is, uh, and the Thai-Cambodian border is, a, is traditionally, for interesting reasons, the epicenter of resistance to the, the drugs. And this is the fate of the drugs in Thailand. We had chloroquine dying in the 70s, sulfadoxin pyrimethamine, or fancidars as some people know it, dying in the early 1980s, quinine slowly going off, the introduction of mefloquine in 1984, good for a bit, then it died. It's 15 milligrams uh, per kilogram, a larger dose, just a little bit of a shift in the dose response, not much effect. So we were looking really at untreatable malaria by the turn of the millennium. And that was a, a very serious prospect. And we were saved uh, by the Artemisinins. So working in fairly difficult circumstances, um, <laughs> up on the Thai-Burmese border, Professor Francois Nosson and his team started to evaluate something which has now become the standard treatment of malaria, and that is Artemisinin combination treatment. It's the same rationale 
for combining drugs for TB, HIV, many cancers, combine them and the probability of resistance will be reduced. So artemisinin in combination treatment, which we now call ACT, was uh, pioneered there and is now the treatment all over the world. So that was effective in where we were working, but things were getting worse in Africa. Um, if we look at all, this is comparing the light blue is 1982 to 89, and this is 19, and the pink is 1990 to 1998. This is children, and all cause mortalities were coming down. Good. But malaria mortality was going up, and it was going up particularly in East and Southern Africa. And the reason was, it wasn't very difficult, it's that the drugs were dying or dead. They just didn't work. So the drugs that we were using for the, one of the main, if not the main, killing disease of children were not effective. And sadly, as is, I'm afraid, quite common in, this, in international health, it, you could have all the science you like, but it required an incendiary headline uh, it, not the sort of thing you normally read over breakfast in The Lancet, and this was the uh, editorial in the uh, International Herald Tribune, and these are really tough words. Uh, there was an uh, immediate reaction from these organisations, first of all to try and identify and kill the authors, but then subsequently they realised actually this was right, and within six months of this paper appearing, everything had changed. It's a pity it had to be like that. So by 2006, we were able to confidently recommend everywhere for everybody artemisinin combination treatments. And then something else rather strange happened. Malaria, which had been extremely unfashionable for about 30 years, suddenly became fashionable again. It had always been a, a good buy, so to speak. Cost-effectiveness, uh, very, very, very cost-effective. Um, if we'll put it in, in, uh, in UK terms, uh, malaria prevention is about 15 pounds per dally averted. Severe malaria with artesanate is only two pounds. And this is the, uh, these are the people who make the biscuits, as you know. They, they, they would recommend anything with approximate, qualies and dallies are not exactly the same, but they're approximately equivalent. So you can see that these are extremely good buys with the, uh, given the threshold that the biscuit manufacturers currently use for recommending medicines. And we began to see rather odd groups of people on the stage together, all uh, clamouring to reduce these diseases of poverty with varying degrees of enthusiasm. We even had Barcelona supporting malaria. And then in 2007, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, somewhat surprisingly, got up on stage and declared war on malaria. They said that the not inconsiderable wealth of their foundation would be put towards elimination. So the E word was back on the agenda. Malariologists had become so uh, burned and damaged by the previous failure that we just almost couldn't talk about elimination or eradication. We actually can't still talk about eradication. We call it elimination now. And they, so they, and they actually, the presentation was quite uh, persuasive because they, it wasn't one of those, wow, we're here to sort everything out and help the world. This is a long-term problem. It's going to be really difficult. It'll take decades, but we're in it for the long haul. And uh, I hope they are. I really do hope they are. What about science? Well, um, 
As you know, uh, everybody who's in science is just on the verge of a brilliant discovery. Just a little bit more money, a small increase in funding, and it's a, it's a done deal. And we've been having a malaria vaccine, uh, just on the edge of a malaria vaccine, just round the corner uh, since I started. Um, and actually, the truth is that we do now, ha we actually do have a malaria vaccine. I have to say that insights from the genomes haven't yielded all the targets for any of the pathogens that we had hoped that they would. It's much, they're much more complicated, or the whole thing is much more complicated. So um, this recurring headline that happens about every two years is actually beginning to be true. We do have a vaccine. It's not a very good vaccine. It probably produces 50% protection. We don't know how long that's going to last for, but at least it is a vaccine. It is the first malaria vaccine, uh, first vaccine of any parasitic disease of humans. Uh, the, uh, the RTSS vaccine, which has been co-developed by the American Army and uh, GlaxoSmithKline. But it's probably not going to be the thing that's going to get rid of malaria from the world. Um, everybody's involved. What is going to be, uh, I think, effective are what we already have used properly. And what do we have? Well, we have, we've still got some insecticides. They're pretty good. In fact, even DDT, used specifically in some areas, is still very good. DDT has got a bad name, justifiably, for its vastly, being vastly overused in the agricultural sector. It wasn't the health use of DDT that, got, that we had the silent spring uh, for. It was the agricultural use. So, yes, where appropriate, insecticides are good. But if the mosquitoes breed in the trees, which they do in Southeast Asia, you can explain to an English policeman that going and spraying the bushes or the inside of a house isn't going to, isn't going to do anything. The second part of the, of the three-pronged attack are insecticide-treated bed nets. Again, a very old idea, the mosquito net, but now the bed net is impregnated with an insecticide, a pyrethroid, uh, and now we have long-lasting nets, in other words, that the pyrethroid stays in the fabric of the net until you can't use the net anymore. And nets last, even if you're very, very careful, they don't last more than a few years. Uh, so these are very, very effective. And where they have been deployed, uh, they have had a dramatic effect on mortality. Now, this is African studies. This is not just malaria mortality. This is all mortality, all death. And where they've been deployed in Africa, they've reduced all deaths by about 20%. So this is a very major, uh, very, very important uh, tool. And in the last few years, there's been a considerable scaling up of bed net distribution, such that in most countries, uh, over 70% of people who need them have them. But drugs are still very important. So let's go back to uh, Jinghao Su, or artemisinin, and the uh, this conundrum. Could Jinghaosu beat quinine? Well, using the right drug as opposed to the wrong drug, a water-soluble drug that's instantly bioavailable after in intravenous injection and very rapidly absorbed after our intramuscular injection as opposed to Artemisa, the one I showed you before, which is very slowly absorbed. This trial was stopped prematurely because of a very large difference. Uh, this was the largest trial at the time all over Southeast Asia, mainly in adults, 35% reduction in mortality, huge effect. Most deaths don't occur in hospitals, they actually occur in or near home, and most of them are in kids. So this was an enormous trial uh, conducted in Asia and Africa, of giving a rectal suppository, a, a rectal formulation of artemisinin to children 
largely children, or adults also in Bangladesh, before referral, that reduced mortality by 25%. But still there was a reluctance to endorse these drugs in Africa, where most of the deaths occur. Uh, for many reasons, people said the disease is different, it's got a faster tempo, it's not so resistant to quinine, quinine's really good, we're very happy with it, we've had it for 300 years, why change, so on. Uh, so this enormous trial was conducted. All these, by the way, are, are orchestrated uh, through, uh, actually through Asia. Through, uh, so this was, trial was conducted in Bangkok, it was orchestrated in Bangkok, all over Africa, largest ever trial. Hopefully there will no, never be a trial as big as this, and this showed a reduction in mortality with artesunate by 22.5%. So you end up putting all the trials together ever in severe malaria, with the sort of p-value that even Rory Collins is moderately comfortable with. <laughs> There's no doubt artesunate is the drug. Uh, actually, interestingly, until a few years ago, except in Oxford, where people were pretty good about this, even in England, you couldn't get artesunate. Uh, but that's another story. We have to be practical. You ha when you're taking anti-malarial drugs, there are lots of different pills. People don't take them properly. So although this sounds trivial, making fixed dose combinations has been a very important uh, advance. And these are, the f these are the five artemisinin combination treatments that are recommended by the World Health Organization now as first-line treatment for malaria. Where all these things have been deployed properly, there have been dramatic reductions in malaria. This was the first uh, time that systematically ACTs were deployed to stop the epidemic of malaria in KwaZulu-Natal uh, just, uh, just at the end of the 1990s, early 2000. And there have been many subsequent um, repetitions of that. So, as I said, malaria's got very popular. In fact, it's very difficult to find a group who aren't trying to save the world by getting rid of malaria. Uh, it is sometimes a little bit too many uh, cooks involved, and there isn't a clear uh, leader, and I think this is a familiar theme in medicine, but perhaps more so in, in international health. Meanwhile, quietly, uh, some countries have just been getting on with the job of getting rid of it, and this list actually could be updated. There's been a, f a few further additions. Iraq, for example, despite all the turmoil of the Iraq war, effectively has got rid of malaria. It's amazing. So this is the world today. Uh, the blue areas are areas where malaria probably will be eliminated if it hasn't already within the next few years. And the real tough areas are the areas in red. So I think this time round we do have some advantages. We understand malaria a bit better. Uh, obviously we're in an interconnected world. Uh, more people involved. We don't have a cold war getting in the way. Uh, we've got genuine, I think, participation of malaria endemic country, not just control programs, but academic scientists and other health, uh, all, all health professionals, and <coughs> different to the first time, a real commitment to tackle the problem in Africa. On the other hand, uh, leadership is very weak, much weaker than it was first time round. Bureaucracy, I don't have to tell you, has done very well in the last 50 years. Uh, it's a very sticky process. Uh, there's less physical, it's much more difficult to access these countries this, uh, than it was 50 years ago. And we just don't seem to be able to take rapid, uh, radical steps. And you might have noticed, or may not, there's been a small economic downturn, which we'll come back to. 
So this is where most of the malaria deaths occur in the uh, sub-Sahel across the central part of, of Africa. And last year we recommended, uh, and this will start uh, this year, that all children under the age of five living in this area will receive, during the rainy season months, this is where, where malaria is seasonal, it's not seasonal everywhere, it's seasonal in this particular belt across here, they will receive a monthly dose of an anti-malarial drug that still works. Unfortunately, these are also the areas where a significant amount of conflict, in fact, that could be updated too with uh, the recent events in Mali and, and Côte d'Ivoire. So it's not going to be easy. The other thing is we've just mentioned, we've just talked so far only about falciparum, but Vivax is a much, it, it, Vivax is about half the malaria in Asia and South America, and it's a much more difficult parasite to get rid of because it has these sleeping forms or hypnozoites in the liver. And they require, at the moment, a drug called Primaquin. Primaquin, uh, I'm sure you all remember, is an H-aminoquinoline, and it causes oxidant hemolysis in people who have G6PD or glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency. That is the commonest genetic abnormality of human beings. And all malaria areas has a prevalence between 5 and 20%. So we don't know how to deal with this. That's the consequences. We're not very good at developing new drugs. Uh, this is the drug pipeline uh, of new anti-malarials, pretty flat, new anti-TB drugs. In stark contrast, the absolutely remarkable and brilliant development of antiretrovirals. This was the last time we had a genuinely new anti-malarial. Uh, this was the artemisinins. And also about the same time, the, the last genuinely new anti-TB drug. There are actually a couple of drugs which are promising, there always are, but whether these will get, this is the, these are the sparrowindolones, they are at least minimum five years from practice. So actually we don't have any new drugs. And that uh, economic downturn again. That, uh, malaria funding used to be literally peanuts and has gone up remarkably. It's actually about one and a half billion a year. It's estimated four billion a year are needed. I very much doubt, particularly given the recent events, uh, that this sort of money is going to be forthcoming. Now the main source of reliable information, as you know, uh, on malaria and indeed other diseases is the Daily Mirror and associated newspapers. And uh, the bad news, and I'm going to finish, I'm afraid, on a rather uh, uh, an unhappy note, the bad news announced in the Daily Mirror is that a new killer bug has arisen. And this killer bug has arisen in exactly the same place where resistance to chloroquine emerged in the 1950s. Chloroquine resistance emerged in the 1950s in Western Cambodia. Uh, and it spread across Southeast Asia, marched across India, crossed in the Indian Ocean, went into Africa in about the late 1970s, and literally killed millions of children. Sulfidoxin pyrimethamine was the next drug resistance to that. We can, we can see from the flanking sequences around the gene for the DHFR molecule, which is the target, that those parasites also came from this area. And now for the third time in a row, in exactly the same place, we see the emergence of resistance now to the artemisinins. We work in Pelin, which has uh, used to be famous for sapphire and ruby mines, and then infamous as the headquarters of the Khmer Rouge. It's just on this border. And what is happening here is that the parasites 
If you treat malaria uh, with artemisinin and palin, it doesn't, that very important rapid clearance of parasitemia doesn't occur. This is the parasites on the western border of Thailand, so a few hundred kilometers away. They're cleared rapidly, they're not being cleared in palin. So we now have resistance to artemisinin, and it's arisen in exactly the same place that resistance developed to the other anti-malarial drugs. And, uh, of course, this is a very sinister precedent. And the great fear is that exactly the same thing is going to happen as happened last time. So, this is my last slide. It's the busiest slide. And it tells you that resistance has spread. What has happened, and I'll just go through this very slowly, uh, this is uh, the speed, the half-life, of clearing the parasites. This is a small study of 4,000 patients who had frequent serial parasite counts after receiving uh, artemisinin, artesunate treatment. And you can see that the number of dots above this line is, beginning to, is increasing. And this is the proportion of patients who have a parasite clearance time of more than six point, a half-life, sorry, of more than 6.2 hours. So what that's saying is the proportion with the resistance is increasing on the western border of Thailand. This, by comparison, is Cambodia. They're not all resistant in Cambodia either, but you can see it started. In fact, it probably started in about eight years ago on the western border of Thailand. And this, uh, this was published two weeks ago in The Lancet. This was published two weeks ago in Science. Uh, there is, this is one of those skyscrapers from Rory Collins' talk. This shows that there is a genome region that's on chromosome 13 of the plasmodium falciparum genome, which is very, very strongly associated uh, with resistance. I'm not saying that's the whole thing, not even saying uh, it's part of the thing. It probably is part of the thing, and it may yield a molecular marker. So it's already broken out from Cambodia, and that's a great problem for the world because Cambodia is a land island. There's no malaria contiguous with Western Cambodia. Even within Cambodia, from north west to southeast, there's a corridor of no malaria. So it was possible, it would have been possible to eradicate in Western Cambodia if you could access everybody in the Cardamom Mountains. Not a trivial, uh, not a trivial uh, undertaking by any means. But now it's out. And as you know, once you go to um, Burma or Myanmar, Myanmar is contiguous with India it's going to be very, very difficult to stop it. So there are two main threats to our current aspirations to control malaria. One of them is that we are, in fact, also seeing resistance to the insecticide pyrethroid in patchy areas, uh, mainly in Africa, but also sometimes in Asia. This isn't compromising the nets yet, but it may well. And we've certainly seen uh, this familiar theme of resistance developing, as it always does in microorganisms, and this could very well scupper our current ambitions to control malaria. So I apologize for that rather down note, and thank you for your attention. <laughs>